0: Why don't you tell me I'm an attractive young lady? Or ask me if I've ever been in love? Tell me how your planet Vulcan looks on a lazy evening when the moon is full.
1: Vulcan has no moon, Miss Avora.
0: I'm not surprised, Mr. Spock. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 48 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, pushing towards that 50. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about shipping Spock and Uhura. The reboot movies did it, the original show may or may not have hinted at it. We're going to discuss it with my guest, Jonathan Schaefer-Hames from Married Wood Comics. How have you been since we last talked after, I guess it was after the first episode of Star Trek Picard? Is that the last time we spoke?
1: That is, I think so, Yeah. About a year ago. You know, once a year, I pop my head out and see whether or not I see my shadow. And then we have six more weeks of Star Trek.
0: Is that how that works? Or 13? Or how many was it this time? (laughs) 23? That was a good time. So we're talking about shipping. Is shipping something you think about in life normally when you watch television? Well, no. So
1: I, of course, was the um, obvious person to have on here. No. (laughs) Shipping is not something that I traditionally have. But it is something that like is kind of creeping into my appreciation of media just because it's be- I think it must be because a lot of the people that were starting writing fanfic back when it was originally becoming a thing in the 90s have now grown up and have gotten jobs writing, you know, actual screenplays and books and things. And so they write a lot of things are written very shipping aware. I think you could argue that discovery is written that way.
0: I mean, there's the romances and then there's the hinting at a possible romance to see what sticks or if the fans are going to respond to that. Or yeah, that's when we talked about doing this, we looked it up. Like the first time you became aware of shipping in fandom was probably the X files. And as it turns out, according to the internet, that's really the first instance of that word being used.
1: Yes, and so that's re- where I remember it happening. That was back in the early proto-internet days in the, the Usenet and newsgroups, which we now refer to as the metaphorical uh, free porn bin at the front of the internet store.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is where fans in newsgroups, in Next Files newsgroups, uh, shipped Scully and Mulder, and of course the show was doing it too. You know, mm-hmm. they were There were Sam and Diane doing that thing. But if you look at the history of shipping... The first actual instance of shipping that just wasn't the name was Star Trek related. It was Kirk and Spock. It was Slash Vic. And that was a form of shipping that, you know, many fans did back in the day. And, um, and you, <laughs> I rewatched the, the reboot movies. And I thought, well, yeah, even now in the modern context the friendship between Kirk and Spock. You know, some people could interpret it that way if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. I mean, so shipping comes from Star Trek originally, in a way. So it makes sense to, to approach this particular topic on the show. I mean, my question originally was, is it possible to say when you watch the original series that Spock and Uhura could have had a relationship, had unspoken feelings, that there was a hint of shipping there? It's in relation to the Kelvin movies where they are an item. Like, why those two? Why did the movies decide, why did J.J. Abrams' team decide that those two should be a couple in the movies if it wasn't hinted at already in the original series, is I guess the question. When I first saw it, I punched the air. Because I already had that theory, or I already believed that theory. But uh, they presented as a fait accompli. When you saw those movies the first time around... Did you feel that this was a legitimate relationship? That this made sense?
1: Ah, uh, first time around, I saw them it did seem to make sense. And when I was first seeing it, it reminded me of of at least the existence, or at least I I seem to remember it having been hinted on in the original show. So it seemed to work. I mean, I think I don't. I'm not sure if Abrams and the and the rest of the writers, if they were specifically building off of something that they saw as existing. Rather cynically, I probably would just say that the reason that they went with those two is because there were the th- there were three leads. It was Kirk, Spock, and Uhura who were the main three, as that they were presenting as such. And I think they were building it up to make it seem like it was going to be a Kirk Uhura. Well, they weren't they, but then they gave us the swerve at the end. Is nope, she's been dating Spock the whole time.
0: Probably that, and also the fact that there aren't uh, many female characters in the original cast. Well, there's only right. one, if, unless you count Nurse Chapel. In the movies, they sort of, if they wanted Spock to have a relationship and wanted to leave Kirk a bit more free to be the Space Lothario, that, you know, I, <laughs> well, I often feel like I, I watch those movies and I'm thinking, yeah, okay, well, of course, the timeline's been changed and Kirk's personality's been changed in a way. Nobody who's written the movies has seen Star Trek. They're only going by the popular culture, the, you know, what what people think they remember about Star Trek. Uh, and they remember Kirk as the sort of space Lothario, so they make the Chris Pine Kirk do that kind of st- stuff, you know, where he's waking up with two girls in the same bed and that, you know, that's that sort of, he's sleeping with a green girl. And that's just like what you remember, what you think Star Trek is like. That is not what Kirk was actually like. <laughs> you know, so it's more like the movies are built on the reputation that Star Trek has of what like the common audience might, you know, might recognize as Star Trek.
1: I've heard it referred to as the ultimate universe Star Trek. And I think that fits, especially in terms of how you look at how Mark Miller might have goofed up a couple of things.
0: (laughs) But at the same time, I'm going, well, if they're going by sort of the fan feeling, maybe that's why Spock needs a relationship, because Spock was very shippable. In the original series, you know, a lot of women gravitated towards him, fans, I mean, gravitated Mm -hmm. towards him, that there was something romantic about the Iceman that needed to be melted, maybe. That's why it's interesting to give him a uh, a girlfriend in the movies, where we're not necessarily giving one to McCoy. You're supposed to have been married, and we're not exploring that at all, you know. The relationship, to me, in the movies is a lot like a bit of um, Sun's Getting Real Low or, (laughs) you know, Black Widow, Hulk. (laughs) His emotions are so strong that he needs somebody to ground him, and that's Uhura in a way. That's
1: kind of how I was looking at it this time. We don't really have much to go with on their relationship. No. Because we're presented it as having already started. You know, We know that he was her teacher at one point. I'm going to go ahead and assume that he was a, a TA and just a couple of years older than her, so it wouldn't be too... Inappropriate on that. In Star Trek, the first one, he's a commander. He does refer to her as lieutenant, so she seems to be a little bit older than the rest of them. But regardless of that, they seem to be going with the vibe of she's the emotional one, he's the illogical one, they butt head. But also there are a couple of tender moments where she's able to help him through his emotional problems. So that works, but I don't know if it works for me as much because it's her or just because it's someone.
0: That it could have been anyone. Right. I like the idea of the communicator, the translator, to be a person that is more uh, culture-adaptable, in a way, that understands other cultures and other, you know, the, the way that he might be, his emotional context. To me, and this is true of the original series as well, she's much more like his mother, His mother was able to, was like a level-headed woman that nevertheless married a, a Vulcan, even though she was human. And there's something of that in Nichelle Nichols' performance and certainly in Zoe Saldana's performance as well. You know, there's like that person that is translating other languages has an ability to contextualize culture in a way that would not cause conflict in a relationship like that
1: all right and i guess that would make a lot of sense as to why he would be drawn to her in either universe because in the first one i mean his mother would have been his only ambassador as it was to humanity he would have been the first human he met he would have been the the human he spent the most time with to try to you know learn as much as he could about this culture that is very alien to him in the In the Kelvin timeline, he is much closer to his mother, you know, even before he loses her and then she becomes such a most important part of his life. So he would be drawn to her or to a compassionate sort of empathetic person like her. And then especially after he loses his mother, it would make sense why their relationship then would strengthen.
0: Like the water isn't muddied by Michael Burnham being in this. Timeline. Of course, the character didn't exist. Although now I'm looking at it, and I, that I, that isn't even in my notes. But the fact that Michael Burnham is his adopted sister in the real timeline, even though you know no way TOS knew this, mm-hmm. might there be a similarity between Uhura and Michael that? You know, in terms of, I mean, Michael also went into the sort of soft sciences, the, you know, she's an anthropologist, she's about communicating with other cultures. You see that in the show. True. And she's very sassy.
1: And O'Hara, both O'Haras do tease him quite often. He doesn't seem to be harmed in any way by this.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, now we can sort of retcon it to say that (laughs) he recognizes something of his sister in Uhura. And physically, too, you know, that they're not too dissimilar physically either. So I I don't know. Is, Is there like a touch of home in her? Something that, you know, that he recognizes in that way. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's funny because I had I had completely not factored that in no. either, but now that I did, I think it will help out my anti ship once we get to the original series. Is <laughs> that she's too much like his sister for his mind for him to pursue that?
0: Yeah, I mean that could be like a a, a reason not to, you know. It's easy to close off the movies here because in any case. Each movie, there's like you know they're doing the relationship thing that you would expect in movies when a relationship is crawling along. Once every three years, basically, you get to have <laughs> some scenes. So in Into Darkness, uh, she's always very supportive, but they add you know they have a fight because he cares too much and he's tra- you know there's stuff like that. And then beyond, it's similar where he's left her because he wants to go to New Vulcan and do his duty for his people. And uh, so so they they're always loving and and supportive. But sometimes they don't communicate too well. You know, he gets very, very motivated whenever she's in danger. So if she becomes the, the damsel in distress and he's activated, it's very bare bones in terms of what a movie relationship is. Exactly.
1: If you wanted to be um, kinder to it, you could say it's, it's a pretty good depiction of a relationship between people in their early 20s. And once it's hitting the 30s, it reaches that point where it either has to – this either needs to mature into something else or it's it needs to end because it's all, all just going to be spinning around on these superficial levels like it has up till now.
0: And we recognize it as there are people in the service and it's, it's the same if it be like a superhero team. It's like very difficult – to have that life and also put energy invest in a relationship and it, so so we understand that this is the movie version of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, on TV, there is no relationship. There there's no romantic relationship per se. But was there any evidence of it? You know, beyond and I think we can talk about Christine Chapel here as well as Obviously, the woman who wants to have a relationship with Spock mm-hmm. and Uhura, who is not necessarily in a relationship, but maybe a better choice for him. Whether we we know of the alternate reality or not, Christine Chapel is a very different character. She's, you know, where Uhura seems very cool, Christine is not. <laughs> you know, Christine's a little bit uh, smothering in a way. You know, she's very obvious about it.
1: If we were going to look at a romantic situation with those two women involved, I mean, Uhura's the more worldly Of the two, and Christine is definitely that scientist's assistant trope. Oh no, will he ever get his nose out of those
0: books and beakers and notice me who loves him? It's not great. I mean, it's very 60s. It is what it is. But I think also, if we're talking about like he's a Vulcan, or he at least wants to embrace his Vulcan side the most, she's way too emotional or, you know, way too obvious emotionally. I think she's really pushing him, repelling him with her emotions. I think maybe this is, you know, whereas maybe Uhura, if we're going to entertain this thought, Uhura being maybe flirtatious, friendly, certainly, we'll talk about examples, but she's not, she's not pushing it and she doesn't appear to be too overly emotional unless the writers decided it was, you know, it's the 60s and we're going to have her faint or, you know, stuff like that, which does happen on the show. The fact that she is more reserved maybe makes her more appealing or less repellent, let's say, to a Vulcan.
1: That's actually a really good point. The way I always, if I'm looking at a, a ship or a if i'm looking at a character at a certain aspect about them and trying to ask hypothetical questions you know normally i wouldn't be so nerdy as to invoke an obscure sociological theory at this my wife just popped her head into the kitchen <laughs> when i said that the side eye that she just gave me is pretty funny there's uh identity control theory. It's by a gentleman named Burke. I'm not going to bore you with any sort of deep description on it, but it basically looks at how we gain self-esteem from the different hats that we wear throughout life, the different roles. And it's basically, we're always doing a, a sort of internal gauging of how well we are coming across in whatever role we're we're doing at the time, like you know, you and I are doing it right now. In a sense, it's not something we're constantly doing, but it's just all of our actions are kind of gauged around this sort of idea. You're being a podcast host right now, so you have certain expectations and behaviors that you project. In this case, that you wouldn't under other circumstances, possibly. And how you think you're doing uh, makes you feel good. Now, for Spock, he has all sorts of different roles that he's. You know, takes on he's got Vulcan is his overarching one and then he's got science officer first officer when he's in command or in the case of one of the examples that we get to first officer in command on a long shift where nothing is happening you know and it, in all of these cases if you wanted to try to slot in a potential relationship into any of those sort of roles especially since you've got Vulcan overarching all of them Spock's not going to be all that interested in them because he doesn't think that being flirty or being seen as romantic is going to tarnish his image or other people's image of how bulky he is. And especially like one like Christine, who is so emotional and over the top, he is going to flee much more from it.
0: He's going to throw her soup out the door, even on a good day. (laughs) With Uhura, I mean, they work together, they work on the bridge together. And like, say you would want to write fanfic What's happening outside of what we see, I think there are some people who would say uh, there is a relationship and there's they're hiding it because like superior mm. officer to, you know, you, you wouldn't want to have in the same way that they're kind of hiding it in the movies. It's kind of unseemly for the the superior officer to date mm. anyone under him. I don't think that's, that's right and that would be a reason not to do it. And certainly for Spock, who is very much about duty and the rules, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people have tried to make every interaction they have on the bridge seem to be like there is a relationship and they're hiding it. So on the bridge, it's it's kind of controlled. If she's ignoring him, she's ignoring him on purpose. And, you know, so you can go far. You can say, like, everything is oh, proof yes. of everything. I owe much of this argument to Ruth Barker, who wrote about it in the Trek fanzine many years ago. Nice. So I wanted to give her credit here, because I'm going to use a lot of her examples. Certainly was a guidebook to what episodes I wanted to rewatch for this. Although (laughs) I don't buy into everything that, you know, that the article (laughs) does, because it does try to make that point that, like, below decks, there's dating going on. I don't believe... Well, that's what makes it fun. Yes, but I don't believe that. But the possibility of a romance between them or an affection between them, whatever that would mean for, for Mr. Spock... Is there, and I think as early as the mantrap. Well, the mantrap is the first episode they aired, and already it's the one where she has small talk with him on the bridge, where she tells him, uh, "Tell me I'm beautiful," and you know, there's a, a real flirtatiousness there, and I think that's where the show begins. So um, between that and then I think in Charlie X where they play music together and she improvises or has written a song about him and teases him openly in front of the crew and he lets it happen and he smiles during those scenes. I think if there's a root cause to this, like the first few episodes, it's all there.
1: Yeah, and those were the two I was um, looking at back when I first saw the Kelvin timeline movies, and I was like, oh, okay, wasn't there something? And I think I was probably amalgamating Charlie X and the Man Trap, you know, in my head as to being a, a thing. Gone back and watched it since then, and it's especially with the Man Trap, because it does show off one of the things I, I really do love about first season original series Star Trek is how day to day work like it seems a lot. People are always drinking coffee and doing paperwork and, and chatting and having small talk. It really gives the idea that there's a lot of time going on in between these episodes because they're flying out into space. And the mantrap. man trap, they're sitting there and they've been goofing around. And it's like anybody who's worked a third shift at a fast food place or something knows those days where your boss is just sitting there and gets a lot more open and laughy, and it's and then sometimes there's a lot more flirtiness going on in that circumstance and it seemed you know realistic so if i was watching this just as a viewer how you know with my sensibilities i would say oh so that's what's going on that's spock you know wearing the roll hat of in command on a long ship but if you wanted to use that as a gauge of these two are totally doing it. And this is them teasing everybody else about it. <laughs> then that totally flies.
0: <laughs> it could. But at the same time, you might track the relationship. Like somebody could do that track, try to track a relationship during the three years. So like in the man trap, there's a flirtation. Nothing's happened yet. But, you know. Right. <laughs> and I, I kind of wish that it you could end it with, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. But if you could basically stop it at the changeling when Nomad wipes her mind. Oh, right. Because she would have had to fall for him all over again otherwise it'd be dubious yeah if there were no instances after that that might might really work well i mean he's very very he's the one that you know jumps to her everybody's going oh no mr scott's dead but spock is focused on uhura rather than like screw mr scott
1: well, because he knew that eventually Christine Chapel would be in charge of fixing her brain, and she knows she doesn't know how to do anything right, so <laughs> very worried that he's probably lost,
0: yeah, but for him, he's very upset and Kurt uh with Nomad at that point, and you know he's the one that that says she's not a unit, she's a woman, like it's like moments like that where the line could have gone to anyone, like Kurt could have do you think Christine?
1: deliberately sabotaged because we're assuming that the rehabilitation point of, of her, her must have involved some sort of 23rd century you know medical technology to be able to restimulate she didn't just teach her how to be a person again in a day or so do you think she deliberately left out the part about how she had a thing for spock so that christina would then have her chance
0: that would be a very dark version <laughs> Get on that fanfic, before. Yeah, yeah. We need to know the, the true story uh, where Christine is, is terrible. No, I don't think so. But, of course, we don't understand what's going on in that scene. Uhura is right back to reading. Like, she's already at fourth grade level or whatever it is. I don't understand necessarily, given the television ev- evidence, what Nomad did to her. Like, is she... Has she forgotten her childhood? You know, it's like, doesn't seem to track, you know, like later, like the next episode of is Fine. Is there a way to reconstruct memory engrams? And I'm sure if it was next generation, those words would have come out of somebody's mouth, Beverly's mouth, you know. Sure. Yeah, but it doesn't end there. You know, it's not, we can't do that. It's too early in like season two and then there's more stuff to come. But it might have been a good cutoff point. And I even tried looking at it from like order of star dates because they're all over the place. In- right. No, it still doesn't work. I tried. I tried. I appreciate your diligence. <laughs> yeah, man. well, I would say that throughout the series, there is, whether from the actors or, you know, I don't know if writers or directors were, were, were doing it, or it's just like a coincidence of who gets the line at that point. But there is like a pattern of behavior where Spock and Uhura move towards one another, defend each other, look at each other, react to each other being in danger, that you don't see with the other characters. There is a pattern. So it may be like very small stuff where, you know, the ship shakes, she falls. It's Spock who goes over and lifts her up while Kirk is lifting up like crewman number two.
1: This is the kind of analysis I can get behind because uh, my college roommate, Christine, used to show me on Charlie Angels, which Angel was totally into the other one using that same sort of evidence (laughs) gathering. (laughs) no, that'll give me an excuse to rewatch the original series.
0: Just yeah, no, I mean there is a filter where you can sort of do that. I've got like other short examples, and I'll let you get to your thesis. But like in the immunity syndrome with well, the giant bacteria, uh, she stands real close to him, and when she faints, he's the one who catches her. It happens twice. Those are the kind of patterns that we see a lot. Return to Tomorrow, that's a late episode. Uhura is tortured by Henoch in Spock's body. Why her? Why? Unless it inflicts more emotional pain on her because when he you know, when he crossed over minds with Spock, he learned that there was a relationship there or an affection there or something there, a bond there. Um and he's a sadist. In Mirror Mirror, look at her reaction at being back at the end. She looks at Spock specifically in a way that's like she's so relieved to see him.
1: Counterpoint, though, the easiest way to see that she was back would be the fact that he didn't have a (laughs) goatee.
0: True. But Will the Menagerie is another one where she's uh, especially shocked when he surrenders to the court-martial and relieved when he isn't. And, of course, it's just like her acting. She could have been just as relieved for Kirk or for... McCoy, you know, obviously it's going to be one of those two because they don't, they didn't give much to do for the others, you know, but she's not that relieved when Mr. Scott is off the hook for doing a Ripper murder. It may be coincidence, but it mounts up in Space Seed. He moves to her defense uh, when she's struck in the face by Khan's uh, goons, you know, so there's just like a lot of this kind of stuff that. Obviously, any male character would have fit the bill, but it just happens to be Spock in those instances and just happens to be her in those instances. There may be points again. I mean, you told me before the show, you do not think there was a relationship behind doors or anything and that there's a reason for it.
1: Right. And then as we were thinking, I'm like, it wasn't that great of a reason. But then I thought (laughs) on the surface, whenever I look at Spock, who was, as you said, a very shipped person and the writers on that show we're always getting him into romantic and pseudo-romantic entanglements. I don't think that he actually had, that Spock would allow himself to get involved in any sort of real way until a muck time happened, because up to that point, he really believed he was about to go away and become married like a good Vulcan should. But occasionally things would crumble around there. If he'd get, you know, get hit by spores or sent back in time or whatever various thing. And at that point, You know, he would let himself fall for someone and the person he would fall for was blonde. So therefore, Spock's true love is blonde Mm. and Uhura is not. But you can still tie it to Uhura to kind of bring it back to the Kelvin timeline because Spock and Uhura in the Kelvin timeline are much younger than they are when we see them here. And when Spock was younger, that would have been about the time that he uh, met what's her name? from the spore planet, you know, who had the right. thing. So I think that Uhura, I think, in the Kelvin timeline kind of represents that period of curiosity in Spock's life, if you want to try to figure out a point of divergence in that timeline. Right.
0: The the Jill Ireland character. That's an interesting point, that it's always blondes. It's also interesting that in between this timeline and the Kelvin movies, in terms of casting, in the original series, his mom is blonde. right. When she's Winona Ryder in the Kelvin timeline, she's brunette. So
1: <laughs> That's true. Now now I'm gonna be up all night trying to find out what the point of divergence was for that.
0: It may mean that the original series one is not a natural blonde. so she changed her hair color, but that's still imprinted on Spock or something. <laughs> so then yeah, so Christine Chapel should be feeling like like a possibility that they're always shipping you with a blonde, and
1: that could also therefore, if you really, if you factor that in, it could be why he is so resistant to Christine because Christine represents a lot of that which he secretly wants that he's trying to push off in order to maintain the general self-esteem he gets from being a Vulcan and a first officer and all of these in which it would be
0: inappropriate
1: too but she's the one that's tempting him looks like his mom
0: yeah. <laughs> there are no blonde Vulcans as far as we know right they're all dark haired and so the the two women in his life that were not blonde would be T'Pring, who he was betrothed to and there's no real relationship there and then the Romulan commander is the other one that people ship him with mm-hmm. who was light haired for a, a Romulan Really? Hey, that is true. But um, but then, is there really a relationship there? Or, you know, he was just... Uh, he was a honeypot
1: in <laughs> that episode. Right. It, it could have made his job a little easier.
0: Yeah. And I agree with everything you've said. That Spock, in the original series or whatever, Spock was too Vulcan to ever fall for any of this unless he was spore-happy or whatever it was. And also, like that whole first season, he thinks he's engaged to someone. His duty and unemotionality would not allow him to have a relationship, some dalliance with a crew member. So it doesn't make sense that there's something going on behind the scenes, although we could say it's at least from Uhura's point of view that she may have feelings for him. And that created a friendship, an affectionate friendship, as affectionate as a Vulcan can get. And that could be true. But then there are points against, historically, and well, a lot of people say Star Trek V never happened.
1: But... I saw it on the screen and it was right there. I paid money for it. it
0: yes, happened. same. In that movie, there is an implied relationship between Uhura and Scotty.
1: Yes. So... If you want to talk about something that comes out of absolutely nowhere... That's the
0: one. Unless, I mean, I don't... Do you have any evidence of any sort Well, did they even interact
1: at any point all that often in the original series? Well,
0: not in the original series, but then we have to factor in that it's like 20 years later. And old true mates might uh, get closer or something. We don't know, but there's nothing in the movie era either that would point to this. It just seems like a strange anomaly. Shatner decided that this would be a thing. Very strange. It's also telling us, oh, her true shipping is with Scotty, and then in the sixth movie... There's no mention of it. it. Never happened. So I'm not sure we can take Star Trek V as a plus or a minus in any case. The other thing is uh, Nichelle Nichols herself. Like, I was wondering, did the actors acknowledge this at any point? Hmm. And uh, she was interviewed in Starlog magazine number 116 back in 87. And there she intimates that Spock was Uhura's mentor. So that's part of the backstory that she had for herself and that they've used in the movies. To me, it seems like they played an unscripted relationship on screen. To her, it was mentor-mentee, but not implicitly romantic. Like, he's very often encouraging to her. Uh, she's, you know, she's working under the console. Uh, so she's very technically minded, which is another plus, you know, in the Spock-Uhura matchup. And then he would you know always say things like, there's no one I have more confidence in to succeed at this or whatever, stuff like that. So if he is a teacher of hers, if he was a mentor of hers... If he helped her integrate into the crew or whatever it would be, then that relationship where there is a closeness, where there is a, I'm afraid for you, I want to help you out, I, that bond becomes more friendship based. And <laughs> we can use that to say, at least in the actors' minds, scripted or unscripted, they were not playing romance. They were playing uh, a friendship and a teacher student relationship.
1: What it came across to me is, above all, is there is a familiarity. You know, there is definitely beyond, their working relationship and whether that's a friendship or relationship or a mentor mentee. If you don't have that context, you can kind of take that off in whatever direction you want to. And it's going to work because it's the familiarity base, I think, that's going to give you those cues in any given, no matter which way you go with it.
0: Yeah. The characters were so, especially in later seasons, were so underwritten as far as, you know, they they were always concentrating on the, the three main friends and they had like a deep relationship. But what was their each of their relationships with the other crew members of note? And that was never quite... We get a lot of that in in season one, and that's where most of our evidence comes from. But later on, you know, it's the friendship between the three guys and plot of the week, like concentrating, focusing on that rather than all those little moments that I do also love where there just seem to be off time and uh, what happens in between emergencies that we see a lot more of in the, in the first season. Like, I've just undone my whole argument but I, I like the idea that you could find a romance there whether it is there or not, whether it was implied or not, or the intent or not and then when you go to the Kelvin movies, say, aha, I've been saying this for years, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so I, I like that aspect of it. it. To me, it was an added value to the Kelvin movies. I thought I had to finish your mission report. I do.
1: But I thought it would be more pleasing to engage with you socially.
0: You old romantic. Bonus question. If these two do not belong together, let's say they don't, who would you ship them with instead? This is going to be exciting. <laughs> I spent a lot of time. Okay, because I, <laughs> I'm not sure I have any answers.
1: I'm assuming just General Roddenberry future space pansexuality for this one, as a true shipper would. <laughs> uh, because for Spock, I actually did manage to find somebody that he could have been secretly doing stuff with below everybody's radar. And that would be Dr. Mabenga, uh, because Dr. Mabenga, with his massive knowledge of Balkan culture, would be the only one who would be able to work through Spock's layers. And I think the fact that he would be able to do that would be something that Spock would be impressed with. And if we're accepting that Spock in his 20s in one universe can be a sexually active or at least a physically active sort of relationship-like person, then he possibly we can then port it back to the original one and say that sort of thing could have led to some genuine level of feelings. And therefore, I don't know how we would, how would we say the relationship? Is it Spamenga or
0: Smabenga? (laughs) Mabenga is my guy for Spock. Interesting. Out of left field for me. I was almost like I was going to say, well, I think, yeah, it tracks. Uh, Spock Kirk, the original slash fic, completely tracks. (laughs) Watch some of these movies and you're going, "Mm, yeah, that friendship, I was mostly thinking, well, maybe not someone on the Enterprise, because that becomes a problem of duty and rank. So are any of the women that we saw him with throughout the series, if circumstances were different, would he have brought back Zerubbeth with him? Or could it have worked with T'Pring? Or that Romulan commander? There's something there. There's something interesting there. I think that's probably the most interesting one of the batch, where he's not high on goofballs (laughs) uh, or or, or any emotional goofballs. It's not prearranged. They're from two cultures that are cousin to one another. There's like a lot of conflict and drama there that's interesting because the way – and then think of this. Spock, in his later life, goes to Romulus to reunite the people.
1: That is the point. And you want to wonder, what was the impetus of that? Either he really, really wanted to to impress his father, or the Romulan commander just never quite got out from under his skin.
0: Yeah, He did seem, especially by the end of that, legitimately impressed
1: with her, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And could we imagine, I mean, by that point, he's rather old. But imagine that she's also alive, that she's his, one of his contacts in the Romulan infrastructure, that he made overtures to her and she's actually part of this that we don't see that's in behind the scenes and that there is a romance after a fashion, you know, a romance based on respect, whatever Spock feels at this point. But, you know, by that point, he's no longer necessarily in the romance business. But yeah, I think there's something that could have been exploited. I'm sure there's more to it in the Romulan cycle of uh pocketbooks. Uh, there are novels where she gets a name and a backstory. By Diane Duane. Yes, My Enemy, My Ally being one of those. And I read them when I was a teenager. So I don't remember exactly what was happening in those books. And I didn't reread them for this. So because I wasn't thinking of it. I'm basically improv here where I think maybe, <laughs> well, maybe the Romulan commander would be... The one. If we're saying it's not Uhura, then I say Romulan Commander would be the most interesting one. You know,
1: I think you've sold me, especially if we factor in the fact that her hair would have turned even lighter as she
0: aged. (laughs) By the time she hit straight up
1: blonde, I think
0: that would have been enough. It's <laughs> mm. true. I mean, this is the blonde theory. The whole thing is based on the blonde theory. What about Uhura? Who, who would Nyota fall for if not Spock? Thought about
1: this one a while. I stopped briefly on Sulu, who I'm going to guess the two of them probably may have hooked up a couple of times. Uhura strikes me as a very free spirit in that regard. I don't know if she's ever going to tie let herself be tied down to one person, but I like to think occasionally that she and uh, Kirk may be actually getting it on uh, behind the scenes, but I think they have a much different relationship than their public one is displayed. And the Captain I'm Frightened is a safe word, but it's Kirk's safe
0: word. (laughs) Okay. I I also thought Sulu, who in in the Kelvin timeline is gay, as the original actor was, but, but George Takei says... No. Says he was straight. My character was straight. I go with that. To me, the the lone evidence, if you will, is Mirror Mirror, where there is obviously something between Mirror Uhura and Mirror Sulu. And if if there's a whole lot of mirrors, then wouldn't that relationship also exist in our world or possibly exist? Obviously it's toxic. It's totally toxic in the mirror universe. And naked times
1: uh, when Sulu was popped up on goofballs again.
0: Is, is there something between them there? That's where he grabs Uhura and says, "I'll protect the fair maiden." Right That's part of the evidence. I think if there's going to be a relationship between people on the bridge, the people we know, then that might be it. I talked about the mantrap at the beginning, but then when the salt vampire takes on a form that is in her mind that is romantically compatible. It is a character we don't know. That's you right. know? Uh, A man who speaks Swahili, who probably comes from the same region she does or something. So there's, she was thinking of home, but she'd just been flirting with Spock. If we wanted a confirmation of the theory, then it, we really needed it to be Spock coming over. to Like the Salt Vampire would have been Spock. In that instance, mm-hmm. that would have been okay. Now everybody's on the same page. That's not what happens. You know, that character was no one. It was like crewman. She didn't know. That was kind of pulled from her imagination more than anything. But yeah, so Sulu is would be my guess in this. But I like your point that she's more of a free spirit, or that that's not how she expresses relationship or sexuality and we sort of see it more in the movies I mean, you know in the movies the fan dance and all of this sort of stuff which is also Star Trek V uh, but um, uh, yeah she seems more like that kind of 60s 1960s woman more of a hippie sexual revolution kind of character and it kind of feels that way I don't know why but and I guess the main I don't want to use the word tragedy
1: disappointment of, of this is what we did get by the show moving away from those little much more interpersonal relationship sort of things is that we missed out on many more opportunities to basically have more answers in a you know Q and A session like this. You know, we we got a stronger relationship between Bonesbach and McCoy built up after that, which, you know, is great and I appreciate it, but we did lose out, as you said, those bits about the random situations. I don't really I don't know anything about how Chekhov and Scotty feel about each other, basically for example. I mean, how am I supposed to know whether or not I can actively ship those? T-
0: <laughs> you can ship Chekhov and Spock, because again, there is a mentor-mentee relationship there that is quite obvious and and written. Plus he's Russian and Dreaming. Yeah, but the, the Scotsman is below decks, but then also has his time in the captain's chair where you know he gets to look at the screen and worry there's not much (laughs) there you know but in the in the the first season we've got Janice Rand is more or less like a soap opera character moving around all of this and and you've got you know Sulu has these many hobbies and he's Beauregard his puppet plant and there's a lot more life just on the ship you know the corridors are full of people and uh, you spend more time on direct deck and uh, I think they were showing how life might be in the future, and once the formula was cemented, there was no need, or I, they felt no need for for this kind. And television at that point was always, you know, reset buttons, so you couldn't advance any kind of relationship except very, very organically and slowly, until more. It was more of a, a process of crystallization, where ah, oh, yeah, that that central friendship, it was always there, but now we're focusing more on it, but. Things had to always be there in the first place for it to really work. So, what do people think at home? Is uh, Spakuhura a legitimate relationship for you in the Kelvin timeline? Was it or was it not telegraphed in the original series? Do you think shipping is stupid? Let us know in the comments section. (laughs) So, Jonathan, thanks a lot for playing this game with me because this was a topic that was St. Valentine's is this week. It may be in people's minds. I don't know. Well, it will be from now on. Well, and now you can't watch Star Trek without thinking of this. We've poisoned your your brain. Tell the people where they can uh, find your shows on the Patiaska Sphere, Jonathan.
1: Yes, and thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun talking about this. My main podcast that I do with my wife, Maggie, is called Look Under the Name Married With Comics. For the year 2021, we are Married With Cartoons. Oh, It's a new format we're doing, but you can still find it under Married With Comics. Maggie and I take turns bringing each other a cartoon that the other one uh, may not be all that familiar with. And then we also have guests uh, come on and do the same thing. Also, we do the Rod Pod, in which we're covering the IDW Transformers uh, Phase 2 comics in order. And we also both appear on the Longbox Crusade Network, uh, where we do Transformers Chronicles the Marvel Years, and we do the Marvel Transformers
0: comics. Exciting. I'll let you go back to your vacation on Ryza. We can dream. (laughs) Yeah. I'll stick around for uh, subspace transmissions. That's Star Trek News and your feedback on our previous episode. Thanks again. You are receiving a transmission from The Rod Pod. Upload pending.
1: Stand by for soundtrack transfer.
0: I am Maggie.
1: And I am John.
0: And we are trapped, hurtling through space in a ship shaped like Rodimus' head.
1: The ship, for reasons we haven't been able to determine, contains the entire run of the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comic. Which chronicle the events following the end of the war between the Autobots and Decepticons. So we figure we may as well read them all in order and report our findings to you. Stand by. Stand by. The Rod Pod. Look for us at marriedwcomics.libsen.com, at iTunes, at Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts can be found.
0: So, uh,. 2 all or 1 2 all or 1 Incoming subspace transmissions First, let's talk awards. Patrick Stewart has won Best Actor at uh, the Critics Choice Super Awards for Star Trek Picard. This is a new event to celebrate the most popular fan-obsessed genres in television and film. The series and Discovery, though nominated for Best Science Fiction Fantasy Series, lost out to The Mandalorian. This is also where Star Trek won the first Legacy Award, recognizing its cultural impact, an award accepted by Patrick Stewart and Saniqua Martin-Green on behalf of the franchise. As far as nominations go, Discovery has been nominated for a GLAAD Media Award for its portrayal of LGBTQ characters, while Lower Decks and Picard were both nominated for NAACP Image Awards. The original series won an Image Award at the very first ceremony held in 1967. Woman in Motion, a new documentary about Nichelle Nichols' role at NASA while she helped recruit people of color and women into the program, trading on her science fiction fame since the 1970s, will be available on demand and digital as of February 16th. Fans who pre-order on Apple will have access to bonus features, including an extended story behind the story featurette, deleted scenes, teasers, and trailers. And in action figure news, XO-6 is a new Star Trek licensee that will produce large, one-sixth scale, collectible articulated figures as well as statues of characters from across the franchise. The first announced figure is Data from First Contact with a cloth uniform, two possible heads, various props, hand positions. These uh, handcrafted, hand-painted figures are said to retail around 190 bucks US for a lower cost, more retro option, uh, look to Mago and their 8-inch figures of Star Trek characters. Since relaunching in 2018, Mago has released nine waves of figures. Wave 8 recently included Jean-Luc Picard and Data from Next Gen. Wave 9, Saru from Discovery. Uh, and each retails around 20 bucks. That's the past What's the present and future? Well, Wave 10 should be out now and include Judge Q and Locutus of Borg. Wave 11, at the end of the month, will include Captain Pike and Michael Burnham from Discovery. And Wave 12, looking ahead, McCoy, Scotty, and the Salt Vampire. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode. Can lore be reintegrated into society with Clo Allard? Let's start with Brian Linton here. He says, Well done. Any episode that can tie Maslow's hierarchy of needs to Star Trek is a winner in my book. I thoroughly enjoyed the insights that Clo brought to Lore's character. I also had never realized how cruelly the Enterprise crew treated Lore almost from the start. I wonder if they subconsciously felt that Lore's existence threatened Data's unique place in the universe, which then resulted in their untrek-like treatment of lore. And for the record, he says, I'd love to see future episodes that did similar psychological deep dives into other Trek characters. Chris Franklin says, I never thought of how lore's treatment was very non-Trek, but it certainly is. It reminds me of the treatment of the M113 creature... AKA the Salt Vampire in TOS, but that was very early in Trek, the first episode aired, so that can be forgiven as practically non-canonical in a lot of ways. Tim Price has fascinating discussion. This probably doesn't need to be said, but it's not just the Enterprise characters, it's the depiction of Lore himself. In all of his appearances, there's an absolute feeling of menace, and then he starts doing awful things, threatening lots of lives, without much time to react. Add in the production itself, where the music indicates danger, and yes, I'm crossing the line between Trek and the audience, but that's part of the point, isn't it? We're able to view and rehash these situations repeatedly over decades, while the crew is living it once. So I guess I'm saying I haven't second-guessed the handling of of lore, but darn it, I loved hearing you and Chloe talk about it. And I really, I think, uh, Tim, I think the decision to treat lore badly yes, of course, comes from the production first. That's how they envision him. They're the puppeteers making the characters move. So what I think we're saying is that the show treated lore badly, rather than any specific fictional character. And finally, some comments from Mike Lacroix says, uh, this was a great discussion, very interesting topic. I always thought it was odd that they kept saying that Data was unique as the only Zoom-type android, and then they'd throw lore away like garbage. The absence of any mention of lore in Star Trek Picard was... Also an odd choice, especially since B4 was featured. The thing I never understood is what happened to the three prototype androids. They were mentioned once in the whole series and forgotten just as fast. I always felt that B4 was one of those three, but he was numbered four. Juliana never mentioned B4 by name in her recap of all the Soong Uh, android attempts. And then he tries to make sense of the dialogue and what these various androids might be and where they might have gone. Were they disassembled for parts for the androids that did survive? So that's an interesting uh, discussion that you can find at (laughs) fireandwaterpodcast.com. the Fire and Water Podcast Network also has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash of the podcast if you like this content want more like it think about leaving a one time or monthly donation it even unlocks rewards for example for five dollars a month you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like Rear Admiral Doug Van Diver Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Fire and Water Facebook page on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcast. And you can also follow the show on Spotify. Till the next episode, this is Ciscoid reminding you to ship boldly.